the NIH, you've probably heard of, it's in the news quite a bit, especially in the season of life that we all find ourselves in, but it stands for the National Institutes of Health and it's our nation's medical research agency. Matter of fact, something that you may have not known, it is the largest biomedical research institution in the entire world. And, and some of the most exciting and most promising medical discoveries uh, has happened under the watchful eye of the National Institutes of Health. Now, the 16th director, the 16th director of that agency is this man right here. His name is Dr. Francis Collins. And anything that you find that Dr. Francis Collins has put on paper, I would suggest that you read it. Uh, he also led the Human Genome Project. And in case you're not familiar with that, it was and still is the largest collaborative biological project in all of history. It started in 1990, and the task of the project was to map and sequence all the base pairs that's within our human genetic code. And they were doing this because they wanted to find the genetic roots of disease, and not only the genetic roots of disease, but they also wanted to find ways to treat and prevent disease at the genetic level. And so they were given 15 years to do so, and they were given a lot of funding to do so, but they were given 15 years uh, to do that but they managed to map and sequence all 3.2 billion, 3.2 billion, billion with a B, base pairs of our human genetic code, not in 15 years, but 13 years. And Dr. Francis Collins, he led that project. Now it shouldn't surprise us that he graduated from a place like Yale. Uh, he graduated with a PhD in quantum physics. I can't really even describe to you what quantum physics actually is, much less have a PhD in it. I just can't understand what it's like to be that smart. And then somewhere along the way of getting his PhD in quantum physics and mechanics, he developed a side interest in biochemistry and genetics. Again, I don't understand how you just develop a side interest in biochemistry and genetics. So he just decided, hey, I got my PhD now, why not, why not just go to medical school? So he went to medical school and once he finished medical school, he went back to Yale because why not go back to Yale and he did a fellowship in genetics. So this is just how mind-blowingly smart this guy is. But he tells a story about being in North Carolina and in North Carolina, he's caring for patients. And in North Carolina, he happens to encounter a lot of Christians. He's 27. Uh, he's an atheist. Uh, he's pretty verbal about being an atheist, but he finds himself working around a lot of people at the hospital who are Christians, but he doesn't like being around them. He finds them a bit weird. So they, they all tended to eat lunch together. So when he saw them all at the same table, he would always go find a different table. And not only did he work with a lot of Christians, but he found himself treating a lot of Christians, Christians with serious disease. And, and he found those Christian patients in his own words, a bit puzzling, uh, a bit perplexing because they were suffering but they weren't bitter. They were in pain, but they had peace. Uh, he just couldn't understand why they weren't angry at God. If they were gonna believe in God, why not be angry at God because you find yourself in such a horrible medical condition. He tells the story of one particular woman, and I love this story. Uh, he, he tells the story of how she was desperately ill. Her, her, her body's racked with pain. Medicine can't help her, he can't help her, so she's dying. Uh, yet, she did not see her situation the way that he saw her situation. 
She saw her situation as it was, but she saw it for more than what it was. And so she had peace and comfort and she believed that God was still good in the midst of all the bad and that there was purpose even in the midst of her pain. And so every day when Dr. Collins would come to her room, uh, he called her this little sweet grandmother-like uh, figure, would always share her faith with him. And he would talk about the fact that he would wanna get in that room and out of that room as quickly as humanly possible. Uh, because it was just kind of odd and kind of awkward and, and he really didn't wanna to listen to it. And so day after day, she would just tell him her faith. She would tell him what she believed and why it was making a difference in her life. But one day, he says that instead of sharing her faith with him, she asked him a question. And this was the question she asked. What do you believe, doctor? What do you believe, doctor? And he said he'd never had anybody ask him that question with such honesty and earnestness before. And he says it shook him, it, it unsettled him. He, he stammered, he stuttered, he, his face got a bit flush and he, he really didn't even know what to say except to say the first thing that came to his mind. And so he responded to her and he said, I don't know, I don't know. In his book, he tells it this way. He says, if I had been utterly honest with her, I would have told her, I don't wanna know. I don't wanna know. And Dr. Collins says that in that moment at 27 years of age, he realized that somehow he had managed to avoid the most important question that any person will ever ask in all of life. Is there a God and does he care about me? Is there a God and does he care about me? He said, somehow I had neglected that question. And maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you are someone like that. Maybe you know them or you are that person who has arrived at a particular season in life and you have done so, they have done so without seriously, seriously considering the question, does God exist? And if that's you, or maybe you're watching or maybe you're in Williamsburg or Somerset or hanging out with us in Middlesbrough today, Maybe it is a question that you have worked hard to ignore. It's a question you've worked hard to avoid. It's been a conversation you're just not quite willing to have. And when somebody brings it up, you have a way of shutting it down. Because if there is a God, the consequences of such a reality is a bit unsettling. And if we're just really honest, a bit inconvenient. Because the idea of being accountable to a higher divine authority is not very attractive for us humans who love personal autonomy. And so maybe you just not wrestled with it, or maybe you just don't think about it very often. And Dr. Collins said that looking back at 27, he, he would call his state of life at that time, willful blindness. I think it's a phrase he brought from C.S. Lewis, but it's refusing to see what can be seen. It's refusing to know what can be known. It's refusing to acknowledge what is right in front of your face. It's willful blindness. It's, it's refusing to explore what can be explored. It's saying, I can't see, but also knowing you haven't looked. And Collins, he writes this about that event when he was 27. He said, that moment haunted me for several days. Did I not consider myself a scientist? Does a scientist draw conclusions without considering the data? Could there be a more important question in all of human existence than is there a God? And yet I found myself with a combination of willful blindness and something that could only be properly described as arrogance. Having avoided any serious consideration that God might be a real possibility. And he says, suddenly, in that moment, all of my arguments seemed very thin. And I had the sensation that the ice under my feet 
that it was cracking. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about two really big important things. We talked about faith and we talked about doubt. And we talked a lot about faith, what faith is and what faith isn't. And we talked about Christian faith, that faith, Christian faith, faith begins with facts. And so to be a Christian, to have Christian faith, you don't have to check your brain at the door. And that's good news because faith, Christian faith, evaluates evidence, it follows the facts, and it follows the evidence, and it follows the facts to the edge of light. And because of the evidence that you have discovered in the light, you manage to find a reason to take one more step into the dark. That's kind of a picture of Christian faith. And that's why we said that faith isn't certainty. Now, faith can be confident. Faith can be full of confidence. But faith can't be certain because that's not how faith works. Now, Christians, here's what us Christians believe. We believe that one day our faith will be made sight. But till then, we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Because on this side of the eternal plane, there's always gonna be an element of mystery and that's okay. Because who wants a God and who wants a cosmic plan, a divine plan to be so understandable that we can understand all the details of it. It, it, it? God's not very big and God's not very grand if we can understand everything about an infinite God, though we are finite in our imaginations and intelligence. So there's always gonna be an element of mystery and that's okay, we should welcome that. There's always gonna be unanswered questions and that's okay. Not all of our curiosities are gonna be fully satisfied. We walk by faith and not by sight. We also talked about doubt and we talked about how there's a benefit in doubt because it keeps us open. It keeps us from being so certain that we close down and we get close-minded and close-hearted. We keep evaluating. We, we keep asking questions. Uh, doubt in its best form keeps us in a posture of, of listening, of learning, of leaning in. And, and I love this. It keeps us open to new information and it keeps us open to new perspectives about old information. That's faith, that's doubt, that's what we've been talking about. And so again, to circle back to the question that Dr. Collins said that somehow he had managed to avoid, that somehow he'd managed to sidestep. The question of does God exist? Some people say yes, some people say no, some people say I don't know. Some people may be so honest to say it freaks me out, I'm not sure I wanna know. Uh, for some people, a world without God just seems unthinkable. It just seems unthinkable. But for other people, a world with God, it just seems unreasonable. But despite how you answer that question or somebody that you love, care about, work with answers that question, whether they say yes or no, there's something that I believe is without question. There's something that I believe is an absolute. No matter which side you come on, you say, yes, I believe, no, I don't believe, or somewhere in the middle of I don't know. Here's a couple of things I think we can count on. If God exists, the consequences are staggering. If God doesn't exist, the consequences are terrifying. Now, I'll explain that more in just a few moments, but as we think about this question, does God exist? And by the way, Christians ought to just consider this question as an ongoing exercise of their faith. It is good for us to meditate on God. It is good for us to think about God, the reality of God the probability, the plausibility of God, all of those things for Christians that strengthens our faith, that makes our faith more robust. It drives the anchors of our faith deeper into the soil so that when life happens and life will happen, 
that your faith will be more unshakable, that it won't be something that collapses under the weight of real life. So if you're a Christian, this is a question you ought to just continue to just ask and answer, ask and answer, ask and answer. And certainly if you don't call yourself a person of faith, I can't imagine that this is not a question that you wouldn't want to try to answer and drill down on. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you open up the Bible, when you open up the scriptures, there's something really striking about how the Bible begins. Now, the Bible is 66 different books, but when you put it together, it tells one larger narrative. And it's the larger narrative, which I find so compelling. Yeah, is there some weird stuff in there? Yes. If you don't think there's some weird stuff in there, you haven't read it yet. If there's not some stuff in there that causes you to scratch your head and say, I'm not sure, it's because you haven't read it yet. You may have read it, but you didn't think about it yet. So, you know, there's some stuff in there. But when you open up the Bible and you open up Genesis, which is the book of origins, the book of beginnings, it's really brilliant. I mean, it's really just almost breathtaking when you think about how the scriptures actually begin. Now, I was always told that Genesis assumes the existence of God, and it, and it does. But not only is there a presupposition to the existence of God in Genesis, but the author of Genesis, which most scholars believe is Moses, Moses also in his presupposition of the existence of God, that God has just assumed, there's also a case that he makes for God in the very opening statement of Genesis. So this, these are the opening words of Genesis that you've heard many, many times before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want us there in Somerset, Williamsburg, here in London, Middlesbrough. I want us all to read this out loud on three. You ready? One, two, three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's how we're introduced to the narrative of scripture. Moses introduces us, and this is again, that I'm telling you, I, I'm, I was just driving in today and I was so excited. I was so pumped because I think about this stuff and, and it just causes my faith to blow up when, when I think about it. And, and we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. So, so being cerebral is a good thing. Exercising our intellect, that is a good thing. And Moses, he opens up the scripture by introducing us to an uncreated God who created the universe. Now it doesn't seem very deep, but it is deep. An uncreated God who created the universe. And he's writing this in the Bronze Age. He, he's writing this somewhere around 15 or so, 100 BC, somewhere around there. And he makes a really startling assertion. Moses in the Bronze Age, when there's not a whole lot of inside available, before microscopes, before telescopes, he says that the observable universe cannot account for its own existence. That the universe offers no explanation of itself. That the universe cannot offer itself as an explanation for itself. And when you drill down on the words of Moses, that's what all's in the first line. An uncreated God who created the world and that the world as we see it and know it and experience it and encounter it, it cannot account for itself. So here's the picture, because this is important. He introduces us to an uncreated, uncaused, intelligent, immaterial God who exists outside of time and space, who created all time, space, and matter. That's the opening words of the book. Now remember, how does faith work? Faith begins with what? Faith begins with facts. And Moses, Moses makes a case that the existence of time, space, and matter are facts. The facts of space, time, and matter, that if you follow those facts, 
Within those facts, there is evidence that points us in the direction of God himself. That on a real simplistic level, that the existence of the universe is a type of evidence for the existence of God. That the existence of the universe is evidence for the existence of God. And so he just kind of throws all of that at us in the first verse. So we shouldn't be so quick to run past it. Because somehow, and this is what is so just compelling about the scriptures, Moses somehow, Moses somehow knew that within the factual reality of time, space, and matter, there would await evidence for humanity. That within the factual realities of time, space, and matter, that humanity, as we drew near to those realities and those facts, we would find reasons to believe that God exists. And that's the first line of the book. So Genesis begins, in essence, Genesis begins with an invitation for us to look up, to look around, and look within in order to find a reason to believe in the existence of God. It's an invitation to observe, learn, and draw conclusions. You know what you call that? Science. You observe and you draw conclusions. You make conclusions based on what you observe. And so Genesis 1 verse 1 invites us to learn what can be learned, to see what can be seen about time, space, and matter, and to do so with an open mind and an honest intent because Moses believes, or he seems to believe, I don't want to put words in Moses' mouth, but I, I think I'm right. Moses believed that as we do so, as we move towards these realities, we find facts that will then in turn give us reasons, reasonable reasons to believe in the existence of God. And that's Genesis chapter one, verse one. So that's where I want to just move away from Genesis for just a moment because that's our backdrop and pivot to science for just a minute and consider the science of the world that's above us, around us, and within us. And I told you about my doubts last week and I'm afraid I freaked some of you just flipping out. Uh, uh, and it's like, what? You doubt like that? It was really uncomfortable. It's, it's okay because if we were all honest, we've all pretty much had moments like that. But in the moments of my doubt, in the moments of your doubt, I would encourage you to find reasons as this series is encouraging us that when there's a question about the reason that we believe what we believe, that we're ready to give a reason, whether someone else is asking that question or whether we are asking ourselves that question. And so when I find myself in the dark room of doubt, I'm gonna share with you a couple of things that I use to talk myself back into the light. And if you sat down with me at coffee and said, Trevor, can you just kind of tell me why you believe in the existence of God? Can, can you give me just, you know, because I can't convince you, but I can tell you why I believe in what I find compelling. And so I'll just start here with number one. Why, why do we find reasons to believe in the existence of God? What is a reason that would lead us to reasonably conclude that God does exist? Well, one, it's the fact that time, space, and matter had a beginning. Time, space, and matter had a beginning. Now, I'm just gonna tell you some things here. It's not gonna feel important. It's not gonna sound important, but it doesn't have to feel important or sound important to be important. All right, if you're with me, say uh-huh. Okay, so science says that the universe is 13 or so billion years old. We can't even, even wrap our mind about how long that is. 13 or so billion years ago, the universe came into being. But this, it wasn't always the point of view of science. 
Up until the 20th century, science by and large accepted what was known as the static theory of the universe, which basically said that the universe is not expanding, the universe is infinite, the universe is eternal, the universe has always been, always will be, that it is just infinite, that, that, it, that there's no expansion, it just is. It is infinite, it is eternal. Again, we can't hardly even wrap our mind around that. But that theory started all the way back in the 1500s and it held on for about 400 years. I mean, it was a mainstay for 400 years. But around the turn of the century, in the 1900s, early 1900s, that all began to change and science was going to rethink itself and it was going to realign itself with brand new information that would change the way they had thought up until that moment. And it all started with this guy right here, Albert Einstein, pretty smart guy, all right? I don't know if you know about him, but, but he's got some game between the ears. I mean, he's a really smart guy. In 1916, he was frustrated. In 1916, he was frustrated because of his calculations when it came to his general theory of, of his theory of general relativity. He, he was doing the math and he was upset about where the math was taking him. He was upset with how he was solving the problem because he knew that if his math was correct, if his calculations of his theory of general relativity, if it was correct, he knew exactly what it meant. It meant that the universe was not eternal, but rather the universe actually had a beginning because the math was showing that once upon a point somewhere in the very distant past, there was a definite beginning to time, space, and matter. It had not always been, but there was a moment that time, space, and matter came into existence. And as he tells the story, he said he found this irritating. He didn't like it because he, prefer, he preferred a theory that said the universe was eternal. Because if you have an infinite universe, you don't have to explain how the universe came into existence. But if you have a universe which had a beginning, you then begin, need, begin to need to wrestle with a brand new question. How did the universe come into existence? Now, this was what the math was saying to him. He, he knew that if the universe was some gigantic effect, there must be some unknown, uncaused, first cause which created the universe. And again, he hated this idea so much so, this is almost unthinkable, but you can read about it on your own. Google me, fact check me. He, he, he fudged the math on purpose. He, he did what most school children, he started dividing by zero. No, 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 Mr. Einstein. But he wanted to show that the universe was eternal in his calculation, so he did purposefully wrong math. So three years go by, and in Britain, there's a cosmologist by the name of Arthur Eddington who is now confirming through his own set of experiments that the theory of general relativity that Einstein dreamed up, discovered, was indeed true. And it just didn't mean that the universe had a beginning, but it also meant that the universe was expanding. It was expanding. And so this was brand new information. This was a brand new way of thinking about all of this. And Eddington didn't like the implications any more than Einstein. Matter of fact, this is what he said. He said, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of the present nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. And so why is that? Why are they so irritated by it? Well, Sir John Maddox, who was a theoretical chemist and physicist, he, he came along and kind of just set out now why they were so frustrated by it. He said, we cannot go down this road believing there was a beginning because it will give too much leverage to people who believe the Bible. Because the first line says, 
in the beginning. So we have a problem. This is troublesome because if there's a beginning, you follow those facts to a very logical destination. And Einstein knew it, Eddington knew it, that the facts take you in a particular direction. More on that in just a moment, but three years later, after Eddington, a, a Russian mathematician by the name of Alexander Friedman, he discovered that Einstein had messed the math up, called him out on it. Meanwhile, there's a Dutch astronomer because science is just going after, I mean, it's like one thing right after the other. A Dutch astronomer by the name of William de Sitter, he found something really important was going on in the world. That general relativity, again, like Eddington and like Einstein had theorized, he actually discovered that general relativity, it actually required the universe to be expanding. And again, everybody was coming to the same set of conclusions, that the universe has a beginning, that it is expanding. So in 1927, in California, a guy by the name of Edwin Hubble, who the Hubble telescope was named after, he looked through his telescope and what he saw on the other end would change everything. He saw what cosmologists and astronomers called the red shift. And again, you can read all about this stuff. It's really interesting. He, he saw a red shift in, in the observable galaxies. And what that red shift basically meant was that it was the light showing the galaxies were moving away from us. It was kind of like the afterburn. And again, it was proof that the theory of general relativity was actually true. The universe was expanding. Now, again, whew, I know. Some days you wonder why you come to church. But just stay with me for a moment. Not that the universe is expanding into space, but space itself is expanding. Sit with that on your lap for just a moment. I mean, space itself is expanding from a single moment in the distant past. Now, again, I could, I could, I could just, I could geek out all day long, but when you look through a telescope, you are looking into the past. When you look up into the night sky and you see the lights from, far, from stars far away, you are looking into the past. When you see the sun's rays, you're seeing the sun, not as it is in this moment, but the sun as it was eight minutes ago. Because it took eight minutes for that light to get from the surface of the sun to the earth. There's some stars in the sky at night that when you see that light, you're not seeing the star as it is today. You're seeing that star as it was 600, 700, 800, 5,000, 10,000, a million years ago. So a telescope is this phenomenal thing and they're looking back into the past and they discovered that as they look back into the past, the universe had a beginning. So in 1929, Einstein had to go see for himself and he went to California and he looked through the telescope and what he saw was undeniable. The universe had indeed had a beginning and the universe was indeed expanding. And since that time, science has come back time and time again to reinforce what began to be realized as true through Einstein's theory of general relativity. That somewhere back, somewhere way back, the universe started in the finite past out of, and this was what was so problematic, out of nothing. That means if you could see the expanding universe put in to reverse, you would see all planets and stars and solar systems and galaxies coming back together back into itself and reducing back, not to the size of a basketball, not to the size of a baseball, not to the size of a head of a pin needle, but to a mathematical nothing. That there was nothing. And then 
something that once upon a time, and you really can't say time because before that there was no such thing as time, but somewhere, and there wasn't really a where because there was nothing, And all of a sudden, there was everything. Now, Stephen Hawking, you know, most of you heard him, well-known atheist for years, who's now deceased, but he, he said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Everybody agrees that there is a beginning. Why is this important? Again, it doesn't sound important, doesn't feel important, but it's important because the very foundation of science is built on the idea of cause and effect that every effect has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. So again, the logical factual trajectory is that if the universe had a beginning, then the universe had a cause. And if everything that had a beginning has a cause, then it means that the universe had a cause. If time, space, and matter all had a beginning, then its cause must be timeless, something outside of time. It must be spaceless, something that doesn't occupy space. It's something immaterial. What does that sound like? Something timeless, spaceless, and immaterial? Sounds a bit like people think of God. So we're kind of left with a couple of different options. It's either nothing or no one created something that we know is everything, or someone created something out of nothing. Some eternal, uncaused, first cause that is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent, and personal enough to make the decision to create to begin with. Sounds familiar. Robert Jastrow, who, who, who founded the NASA Goddard Institute, he said this, he said, when an astronomer writes about God, his colleagues assume that he is either over the hill or going bonkers. In my case, it should neither be understood from the start that I am agnostic, should, you should know that from the start, I am an agnostic in religious matters. So not a Christian. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply with a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all of this happened as a product of forces. They cannot hope to discover that there are, listen to this, I love this, that there are what I or any, anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. So why do you believe that a reasonable person can have a reason to believe in the existence of God because time, space, and matter had a beginning. And everything that has a beginning has a cause. And that cause has to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, and intelligent. It just has to be. When you follow the facts, it takes you in a very clear direction. Second one, really quickly. I won't spend as much time on this one. The universe seems to be finely tuned for the existence of life. Now science, science can only take us back to the moment, just the moment right before the, the Big Bang when we know that there was, there was nothing. And out of nothing came an explosion. I mean, how does that even, out of nothing came an explosion that occurred at just the right intensity, at just the right precision that Stephen Hawking, he, he, you know, super smart, he figured this out. He said that if the rate was different by 100,000 million million, one second after the Big Bang, that the universe would have either collapsed upon itself 
or it would not have been able to produce galaxies. Yet, when the universe exploded, whatever happened in that moment, when the universe just explodes into being, it happened at such a precise rate, it almost seemed pre-programmed to do so. And in that moment, it gave birth to time, space, and matter, and all the laws that govern time, space, and matter, the laws of chemistry and physics, the laws that didn't exist a fraction before that explosion. And this is supposedly supposed to be by chance. Now, again, we're gonna make all the resources. I've been reading about this for, for months and, and I lo love this type of reading. So all the sources that I've used uh, to try to pass along to you, we'll make, we'll make known to you just so that you can, hey, if you wanna go, go a little bit further, go a little bit deeper on this, we'll, we'll tell you exactly. But a lot of people, when they think about the universe, that this is how we got here, it's kind of, they explain it as the roll of the dice, the cosmic dice. Our number just came up and bam, out of nothing, here we are. Wow, what a coincidence. Cool, right? I mean, it's like, but what are the chances? Well, let me, let me give you a little, I'm told I'm supposed to say die when it comes to one, but I'm gonna refuse to do so because I don't feel right when I do it. I'm gonna call it die. So grammar police, go chase down somebody else, okay? So when you roll a dice, I know some of you, it's just, you're just wanting to scream right now. And I know a few of you and it's, I'm, entertained very, very deeply in my heart about it. But anyway, when you roll the dice to roll a six, to roll a six, you have a one in six chance, right? Now to roll two straight sixes, you have a one in 36 chance because one in six times one in six is one in 36. Uh, to do it six times, it's like 216 times. So it just, the more times you wanna roll the same number over and over again, the, the, the number, the odds just go up exponentially. Now, someone decided to ask the question, what would it look like to roll a six 70 straight times without any break in the, pro just 60 straight sixes, you roll those sixes 70 straight times. And someone figured it up that the odds would be one in 10 to the 55th, which is this number right here. One with 55 zeros. Again, I, I'm not, this is too smart for me. I'm just passing along a report from very smart people, okay? You, you, can, you, can, you can think with them later, but. So that would be at one in 10 to the 55. And, and so how long, again, would it take you to roll uh, 70 straight sixes if you kind of just kept rolling with about five seconds in between each roll. How long, based on those odds, would it actually take you to roll 70 straight sixes? Well, somebody figured it out and said it's 100 trillion, 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 trillion years. That's the odds. That's how long it would take you. Now, what's very interesting is that those are roughly about the same odds of us being here. The odds of rolling 70 straight sixes is the same odds as the expansion rate of the universe being what it was in order to be just right. Not too fast, not too slow, but just right in order for life to be able to be sustained. Now, imagine you walked into a casino. Now, I know some of you are Baptists, you don't even know what that is. And it's like casino, casino. What is that like a food store, specialty food store? What, I mean, it's a place where people go. That's all you need to know. And so, so, you know, people go to a casino and if you saw somebody roll 70 straight sixes, 
What would you logically deduce from that? The dice is loaded. The dice is rigged. There's, <laughs> there's something going on here because this just doesn't happen. But yet when it came to you and it came to me and it came to us in the world that we look up and see, in the world we look out and see, in the world we look in and see, it happened. It was like the universe rolled 70 straight sixes the first time. So think about that. I mean, just think about that. I mean, out of nothing came a precise explosion that created time, space, and matter with all of the complexities of the laws of physics and chemistry. And here we are. And there's science. If without those laws, there could be no science. Paul Davies, a cosmologist, he said this. He said, all science proceeds on the assumption that nature is ordered in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought the universe was meaningless, jumble, you know, jumbled up odds and ends haphazardly juxtaposed. He says, there's natural laws that govern the world and they're expressed mathematically. Let me, again, this is an exercise for home. Go home and think about mathematics. We not only invented it, but it is like we stumbled into something that already just existed all around us or what Galileo said was the language in which God wrote the universe. Mathematics. I mean, if I knew it was the language of God, I might have paid more attention to math in school, but they didn't tell me that, so I just kind of thought it's not that important. I'm more of an English and literature kind of guy personally, but that's just me. But, you know, so you, you got all these laws and you got all this matter that didn't exist a nanosecond before that initial explosion. And then there's 122 what's called anthropic constants that are all around us in the universe that allows life to be possible and that if you adjusted one just a little bit, life is not possible anymore. We're located in just the right, you know, the Goldilocks zone. Not too far away from the sun, not too close. Oxygen level, if it was a little bit more, you know, there'd be just fire. If it was a little bit less, we'd all suffocate. The gravitational force, if it was just a little bit different, there would be no life. I mean, it's amazing. The thickness of the crust of the earth, if it was just a little bit thicker, if it was a little bit thinner, there'd be no life. And back, you know, thinking about, you know, the transparency of the, of the atmosphere, if it wasn't exactly the way it would be, too much sun would get in, not enough sun would get in. The, the amount of lightning that exists affects the nitrogen. I mean, it just goes on and on and on that if you just tweak the t axis of the earth, if it spun just a little bit faster, or a little bit slower, if the water vapor wasn't what it was and you just tweaked it just a little bit, there would be no life. And it just seems like somebody finally tuned all of this. They just set the thermostat. They just kind of mess with everything. And here we are. I promise I'm, I'm wrapping it up, but let me, let, me, let me tell you what somebody else said, because it's like, why would I believe you? What do you know? That's, good, that's probably good thinking, so stick with that. But let me tell you what somebody else said. Arno Penzias, who, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, he, he said this. He, he discovered background, cosmic background radiation. Really big deal, don't have time to tell you about it. He said, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced, delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. John Lennox. Professor at Oxford, he says this, he says, the mathematical intelligibility of nature is evidence for a rational spirit behind the universe. Fred Hoyle said, a common sense, just common sense of the facts, an interpretation of the, tact, of the facts suggests that a super intellect 
has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces we're speaking about in nature. Uh, another cosmologist, physicist, he said this, Dyson, he said, the more I examine the universe, the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. And even again, Stephen Hawking, atheist, I love what he said, it was honest. He, he said this, the odds against a universe like ours emerging of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. I think he's right. I think he's right. Last one, and this is, this is where it ends. Why do we have a reason to believe in the existence of God? Because the life that does exist is complex and appears to be intelligently designed. Amen. Richard Dawkins, again, famous atheist, wrote you know, The God Delusion and other things, lectures on YouTube. He said this, he said, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance, just give the appearance that they have been designed for a purpose. That when we looked into microscopes and we studied what we could see in the cell, it was almost like someone had drew it up. And science has taken us into those places where as we confront those facts, they take us in a logical direction. For instance, DNA. There's no such thing as simple life. It's all complicated life, even a single cell amoeba. Take the DNA out of a single cell amoeba and you can fill a thousand Encyclopedia Britannicas. Some of you who grew up under the age of Google, you're like, Encyclopedia Britannica, what is that? It's a set of books. That's things that are bound with paper and, and you open them and there's information in there. A thousand Encyclopedia Britannicas would be filled by one single celled organism's DNA. And just not filled, but readable, intelligent information your DNA, my DNA, 6.4 letters long, 3.2 billion base pairs. And inside your DNA and my DNA, there's all of this instruction and information that makes DNAs make proteins and proteins organize into cells and structures and types and tissues and organs and body plans. And they just seem to seemingly mindlessly carry these functions out and sustain life. It says if somebody approached it as building a house, there's the architectural design plan and then there's all the raw materials that you have to put together to build the house and your body has got both. My body has both. It has the architectural plans and the raw materials that come together to build what we call life. It's incredible. You got cells and tissues and organs and things like the eye. I mean, if you, you wanna see something complicated, just read about the human eye and DNA it's what someone called the language of life. If someone brought you a note, you wouldn't read that note and say, well, there's a good chance no one wrote this. Right? If someone handed you a note and it was intelligible and it communicated something to you, you would assume, because that's what your logical faculties have been finely tuned to interpret that someone of intelligence must have written this message. Someone had to write it. When we look into the language of our own genetic code, it seems as though a reasonable conclusion to say someone had to write it. Michael Denton said, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great 
that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. Someone says, you know what, God, if you show me a miracle, I will believe. Well, one, you read the gospels and you'll find out that's not true of us because they crucified one who showed them miracles. But yet when we look up, when we look around and when we look in, there's the miraculous. More than chance, more than just unexplainable, there's the miraculous. And that's why, for me, nothing creating everything by accident seems unreasonable. Nothing creating everything by accident that is so complex and designed seems unreasonable. But for me, when I follow the facts and I find the information and I look up and I look out and I look in, I find that there must be a powerful, intelligent, uncaused, first cause who is timeless, spaceless, immaterial, who is responsible for all time, space, and matter. To me, I find that reasonable. Which is why the scripture says, look up. And the psalmist said, and when you do, you'll see that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. You'll find out what people like David discovered in Psalm 8, that when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars and the works of thy finger, I am forced to think, who am I that you, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, intelligent, powerful, would be mindful of me. When I look at the complexity and the beauty of the world and of people created in the image of God who are intentionally designed, I, I hear the whispers of a divine designer. When I look inside my own desires, my desire for purpose, my desire for meaning, my desire for justice and joy and community, I have a hard time believing that just popped up out of some mindless evolutionary process guided by natural selection. But those desires perhaps are coming from the one who planned me and created me. That every culture in every part of the world throughout history has always seemingly had a predisposed intuition to look up, to look around and to look within and conclude that there must be something outside of us that is greater than us, that there's more to this than cosmic chance. But I told you, if God doesn't exist, the consequences are terrifying. That's a reality I, I just, I, I don't think we're ready for it because in an absence of God, in an absence of his reality, we're just mutations from molecules. We're accidents coming out of primordial sludge. We are a people who have no value. We are a people who have no meaning. We are a people who have no purpose. We live in a universe that doesn't care without a God who doesn't exist. And we are destined to die without any hope. But if God does exist, you, and me, we are not accidents. 
and we are not alone in your life and my life and every life has meaning and purpose and value and there is such a thing is as of objective truth there is such a thing as justice there is such a thing as a God who has transcendent power and worth and greatness there is a God who is personal but yet he knows us he cares about us and Christians believe that God became known to us in the person of Christ now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Amen. So would you look up? Would you look around? Would you look within? And I believe that if you seek him, that his words are true, you will find him. And you'll find out that he's never been that far away. That the one who created the heavens and the earth, as Isaiah poetically put it, he scooped out the oceans with the hollow of his hands. He weighed the mountains in the balance of his hands. He put the stars in place and he called them by name. He knows the very numbers of the hairs on your head. He's there, he cares, he is. One year later, Francis Collins was hiking in the mountains when he was overcome by the truth that he had been seeking and the God that he had been running from. And he said he couldn't resist it any longer. And that day he fell through the cracking ice into the warm embrace of a heavenly father. Heavenly father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. May our hearts be open, our minds be open. If if we call ourselves Christians, may our faith blow up. May the implications of your existence and reality and presence, may, may it just be a weight that we can't escape. And for those who haven't made up their mind, I pray that they would seek you. And in doing so, I'm confident that they will find you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,